Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. America's technology has turned in upon itself. Its corporate form makes it servant of profits, not the servant of human needs. Alice Embry. 1970. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Dr. Nicola Henry about a digital abuse and harassment. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, so I've been looking at sexual violence for the last 20 or so years now. A lot of my research has been focused on rape law reform, so how can we change the law to better accommodate victim survivors of rape and sexual violence. My PhD research that was done at Melbourne University 12 years ago, I looked at the prosecution of sexual violence at international war crimes trials And my more recent work has been focused on technology-facilitated sexual violence, so where technologies are used in some ways to perpetrate sexual violence and sexual harassment. What was it that inspired you to study digital abuse and harassment? So as I said, with my previous research looking at, uh, or my 20 years of research looking at sexual violence, that was obviously an inspiration for continuing that work, but looking at the different ways in which digital technologies are involved in different forms of, of sexual violence. My colleague who I work with at RMIT University, Dr. Anastasia Powell, also conducted her, also did her PhD at Melbourne University, and she was looking at young people and issues of consent and this issue around digital technologies came up in the research that she was doing with those young people so there was a case back in 2007 an Australian case in Werribee where a group of young boys filmed the sexual assault of a 17 year old girl with a a disability and they sold that film or that video on uh, the internet and they also it was distributed around schools for five dollars and so that case was you know obviously very shocking but was an inspiration to to kind of further investigate this issue but there have also been a number of other really high profile cases that have come up in recent years so for instance in 2012 the Steubenville Ohio case in the US where a 16 year old girl who was passed out at a party and was sexually assaulted. That sexual assault was filmed and was shared around the group of, of young people. That case, you know, and it isn't, you know, in isolation. There's also been a number of other cases that have come up. Could you explain how conceptualising techno-social sexual harms... So 
So in our work, we see technology-facilitated sexual violence, which is the term we've come up with, um, as an umbrella concept for a range of abusive behaviours that exist on a continuum. So we um, we look at things like uh, technology-enabled sexual aggression. So that's where a technology is used in some way to set up a rape or a sexual assault. We also look at image-based sexual abuse, which includes the non-consensual taking, sharing or threats to take or share nude or sexual images, which is also known as revenge pornography. We also look at online sexual harassment, which is which includes things like image-based harassment. So, for instance, um, you may have heard of the term dick pics, where a person sends another person pictures of their genitalia that's not been solicited, it's not been invited. Um, basically, that's unwanted. But we also look at gender-based hate speech and online rape threats. And I think it's also useful to think about the ways in which cybercrime might be quite different from so-called traditional crimes. So, for instance, cyber criminologists often distinguish between so-called traditional crimes like theft and child abuse material and fraud and, and other uh, other traditional crimes like that where, where technology is used in some way which they refer to as technology-assisted crimes. But they also compare those set of traditional so-called traditional crimes with new forms of criminal offending that have only become possible with the advances of digital technologies. So, for instance, some criminologists have concluded that there's nothing ultimately new about cybercrime but that in the age of social media and, and in the digital world, what what is new is that there's literally millions of potential victims. There's numerous incentives for motivated offenders. So, for instance, there's enormous potential reward for little expended effort. And there's also a largely an absence of capable guardianship. And basically what I mean by that is there's the anonymity that, that protects offenders from being detected. But really, as technology is becoming more and more part of our everyday lives, the distinctions between traditional and technology-assisted crimes are basically becoming increasingly blurry. What we say in relation to technology-facilitated abuse and violence is that we're essentially talking about traditional sets of behaviours that have existed since the start of human civilization. So, for instance, rape, domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment, rape threats, and gender-based hate speech. They, you know, they're not new forms of criminality, but what we argue is that they, there are new manifestations of those crimes or those behaviours, and there's different types of impacts that we, that we really need to understand. What is rape culture? Rape culture is an interesting term. It's highly contested. There's a lot of debate about whether or not it actually exists. But a question I want to pose is how do we make sense of all the abuse, harassment and violence that we're seeing in online spaces, particularly against women, particularly against young women and particularly against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer individuals and particularly against people from particular ethnicities, races, religions and also those with disabilities. So basically a rape culture is... Uh, it refers to essentially a set of beliefs that encourage male sexual aggression and that's supportive of violence against women. So in other words, rape culture is one that both implicitly and explicitly condones, excuses, tolerates, normalises and romanticises sexual violence against women. But there is a lot of opposition to this notion. So some, for instance, have argued that the statistics on sexual violence are overinflated, that the methodology that's used in some of these studies to, to look at prevalence are flawed. 
rape culture deniers, if we can call them that, also argue that rapists are heavily punished in Western societies and they point to the fact that an accusation or a conviction for rape can destroy a person's life. Therefore, they argue that rape is not, in fact, trivialised and they also argue that those who do perpetrate rape are just a few so-called bad apples. So some of those those critiques are, are interesting, but what I would how I would counter that is by saying that there are widespread rape myths that are that are widely accepted in our society. So, for instance, with the rape and murder of Jill Ma, she was a, there were a lot of commentary around you know the fact that she was wearing a short skirt and that she was walking home alone at night and she was wearing high heels. There's still, in our, unfortunately, in our community, a lot of acceptance of those so-called rape myths. There's a lot of sexual objectification of women in mass media, including in pornography and advertising. When we also look at the the various studies that have been conducted both in Australia but also internationally as well, the the rates of the rates of victimisation, particularly amongst young women, are incredibly disturbing and incredibly high. So, for instance, in Australia, one in five. Uh, women have experienced um, sexual assault since the age of 15, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And, and really that does point to this being an incredibly common problem and, and does also point to this problem of, of a rape culture. We also have widespread victim blaming, as I already mentioned. And the other thing too, just to lend support to this idea of a rape culture is the low reporting rate, so victims being reluctant to report to police to go through the criminal justice system. We've also got low prosecution rates in the criminal justice system and low conviction rates for rape as well. There's been quite a bit in the media recently about revenge porn. So yes, there's been a lot of attention in the media uh, over the last kind of two or three years, in particular around this problem called revenge porn or revenge pornography. So I just want to point out first of all that that, that term is quite problematic. So the issue is is that a lot of times when an image is shared without consent, an intimate image like a nude or a sexual image, is that the the perpetrator doesn't actually intend, it doesn't actually have motivations of revenge or retribution. So really uh, the other problem is, is that the term pornography focuses on the content of the image and doesn't really get to the abusive action of perpetrators. So that's why we prefer the term image-based sexual abuse because it's much more broad. It includes the non-consensual taking of of a nude or sexual image. It includes the non-consensual sharing of those images. And it also includes the making of threats to share nude or sexual images. So the media attention has been useful. Obviously, the term revenge porn is a lot more catchier than, than image-based sexual abuse. So we recognise that the that, that term has actually played a really important role in raising attention to this issue and, and getting that really much-needed media attention. But we do need to move on from that term and we do need to look at the complexity of this particular issue and the different motivations and the different contexts in which these behaviours are occurring. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr Nicola Henry about digital (laughs) abuse and harassment. I suppose there's been quite a bit of online misogyny, isn't there? 
Unfortunately, there is a lot of online misogyny out there. But I also want to mention that the internet is also really awesome as well and our work is not meant as an attack on the internet or on digital life. But let me just focus here on a few examples to I really to really highlight the negative side of human nature, I guess, where digital technologies are being used in some way to get power over someone or something. So it might include, for instance, the use of an internet site or a mobile phone app to set up a rape or a sexual assault. So for instance, two people might meet online and when they meet up in person, a sexual assault or a rape might occur. It might also include situations where a perpetrator advertises on an online classified or trading site that their partner or their ex-partner is available for rough or violent sex. And there have been cases where the women have actually been raped by complete strangers in responding to those advertisements. There are examples of kind of sexually aggressive behaviours where rape victims, for instance, are collectively harassed by a group of people. So some of your listeners may be familiar, for example, with the Audrey Pott case from a number of years ago where three Californian teenagers sexually assaulted a 15-year-old girl called Audrey Pott while she was drunk and passed out at a, at a party. They recorded the assault and then they distributed the images to their peers and Audrey was subjected to harassment and humiliation as the photos of the assault went viral and she went on to take her own life eight days later. So so obviously some really extreme and awful examples of online abuse and harassment. But we also have pro-rape groups on the internet. So for instance, websites that have those non-consensual images of female students, for example, with you know the upskirting or downblousing photos or videos, commentary that rates the rapeability of female students on a scale of 1 to 10, also jokes about rape generally, including commentary regarding specific incidences of alleged assaults on campus. And I've already talked about the image-based abuse, so where a person is sharing nude or sexual images online, for example, or someone secretly recording a consensual sexual encounter and then and then sharing those images in some way. But we also include, on the other kind of end of the scale, other forms of online misogyny, different examples of online sexual harassment. So unwanted requests for sex, image-based harassment, also known as dick pics. We also have online gender-based hate speech, particularly against women who, in in particular types of industries like gaming or IT, um, engineering, those types of traditionally masculine kind of domains. And we also have online rape threats as well. Do you think that the law has been able to keep pace with technology? Well, uh, unfortunately, the law is a reactive force, so it's always responding when when something happens. But in saying that, the law is you know does play a really important symbolic role in addressing new forms of of criminal offending. But obviously, we don't just have the criminal law; we also have the civil law as well. So that's also important to take on into consideration. But the law is always going to be playing catch up, and particularly given the rapid advancements of digital technologies. The law, it it is quite slow in in keeping pace with those new technologies. But in saying that, I think it's really important not to rush into legal reform in in these particular areas. And it's important to see what's happening elsewhere, to see how the laws are developing in other international jurisdictions, to see, you know, how to, what kind of wording to use and to make sure that the the law is kind of used or written in the right way. So just to give you an example in relation to so-called revenge porn or image-based sexual abuse behaviours, 
in Australia, we currently don't have any specific offences at the federal level for image-based abuse. So we have the telecommunications legislation, which is a much broader law that deals with the use of a carriage service to menace, harass or cause offence. But unfortunately, that law has not been used very much in relation to these types of behaviours that we're seeing, the online abuse, harassment, the image-based abuse. Also, only in Victoria... South Australia, the ACT and New South Wales are there specific criminal offences to address the non-consensual taking or sharing of nude or sexual images and the non and, and also the, the making threats to share those images. But in the other Australian jurisdictions, there are no specific criminal offences and that's a real problem and we'd really like to see some change happening there. But law is not the only answer and we really need to think much more broadly about the other ways in which we can address this issue. Yeah, I think sometimes the the law has to be changed before people's opinions change, don't they? They do. It's a really interesting when you think about, you know, what comes first? Is it societal change or is it kind of legal change? And what what role does law play in, in changing attitudes, beliefs and values within the wider community? And it's a really difficult question. There's no real answer to that. But I think as a first step, we do need to make sure the law is changed because the law can play a symbolic role. It might not act as effectively as we'd like um, in terms of being a deterrent for people engaging in these types of behaviours. But it it may have some impact on that, certainly. But it's also, it sends out a, a message to the community that the society in which we live is taking this issue seriously. And I think that that's some comfort to to victims of these types of behaviours is that, that, that there is something in place should they wish to go down the criminal justice pathway. I think it's also dangerous to solely focus on, you know, amending the criminal law, introducing those specific offences, because really this is an issue that is going to take a lot more than, than law reform. It's an issue that needs to be tackled from a whole lot of different angles. So we also need to make sure that we have the support in place for victims who've experienced these types of online abuse and harassment behaviours. We need to ensure that our civil laws are strengthened as well, so that if victims should wish to pursue or you know to sue someone in a civil court, that that option is available to them and is not as expensive as it currently is. But we also need to focus on prevention. So we need to think about education in primary schools, high schools, universities, but also within the community about getting the message out there that it's not okay, that it's unethical and it's criminal to not have consent to to take image, intimate images of another person or to share those images. And, and that's really how I'd like to kind of see this issue being tackled legally and also non-legally and, and a whole range of different tactics and strategies that hopefully will, will prevent these behaviours from happening but also res- that we're able to respond more adequately when they do happen. Yeah, I think it was a really good point you made about the use of you know, terminology because it mightn't just be pornographic images that are posted online. For example, I was just reading a story a couple of weeks ago about a young woman who her parents had posted photos online of her when she was quite young, you know, in, having a bath and going to the toilet. And she asked them to remove it, and they, they didn't. They thought it was quite amusing. So she's taken them to court over it. 
That's right. So, uh, you know, that's really why we, we think the term image-based sexual abuse is more appropriate because it focuses on the abusive action of the people who are, are posting or, or taking those images without consent. And that doesn't have to be a motivation of revenge. It might be that someone's doing it because they think it's funny. I'll give you an, an example here. There was a New South Wales case. It's quite well known in Australia where a woman was under anaesthetic having, uh, I think, a gynecological surgery or some kind of medical procedure. And a female nurse took pictures of her while she was under anaesthetic. She took pictures of her genitals. Now, whether or not she shared those images, I'm unsure. But that was certainly not an example. You wouldn't call that revenge porn. But it most certainly is a, an example of image-based sexual abuse. And the problem with that particular case is that in New South Wales at the time, that couldn't be prosecuted, that nurse couldn't be prosecuted because she didn't have the motivation of sexual gratification, which was a requirement under that specific provision in, in, in the Summary Offences Act. New South Wales, as partly in a result of that case and the kind of legal gaps, has actually amended its law. The new law came into effect in August this year. That that just is another example among many more of why the term revenge porn is, is not an adequate description of the types of harms that result and also the types of motivations and the different relationships that people have, the, the victims have, for instance, their perpetrators. Do you have any future study plans within this field? I have a lot of future plans to do further research on the use of, of technology in perpetrating sexual violence and sexual harassment. We have just begun a really big international study that's been funded by the Australian Research Council. We're doing nationwide surveys in Australia, in the UK and in New Zealand to further get further information about the prevalence of image-based sexual abuse. We're also doing interviews with victims to learn more about the impacts and the harms that they experience. And we're doing further interviews with stakeholders who are at the often at the forefront and, and addressing these issues in a legal context, but also might be also have clients have experienced these different forms of abuse and, and harassment. So that's certainly something that we'll be continuing to do work on. But I'm also interested in looking at corporate social responsibility. I think it's a really important issue that we need to get on board big technology companies, the social media companies and other corporate organisations to, to also help address this issue because they're a large part of the solution to the problem, particularly around them having really good policies in place on their on their sites and having the, the practices and procedures in place to remove offending behaviour on those particular websites. So so that's something that I'm I'm really interested in. But I'm also interested in some of the kind of theoretical debates or discussions, philosophical debates around freedom of speech and and the right to sexual autonomy, a freedom of expression, the right to privacy, I think is a really important issue as well. So that's some of the things that I'd like to, to do more research on. Thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks so much, Beth. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking to Dr. Nicola Henry about digital abuse and harassment. Well, thanks very much for listening. Hope you've been given plenty of food for thought and do stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?